I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's one of LA's perfect days, 70 degrees and a bright, clear blue sky. We are at the sprawling Hollywood Forever Cemetery off Melrose Avenue, the entertainment industry's version of Westminster Abbey. The list of notables buried here, Judy Garland, Douglas Fairbanks, Burt Reynolds, Chris Cornell, Rudolph Valentino, Cecil B. DeMille, Mickey Rooney, two of the Ramones. The list goes on and on. The dedicated cemetery historian, Carrie Bible, is giving one of her famous tours. Welcome to Hollywood Forever. The cemetery was originally established in 1899. It's on the National Registry of Historic Places, and it truly is one of the beautiful historic gems of Los Angeles. We arrive at a lovely man-made lake populated by peacocks and swans and dominated by what looks like a faux Grecian temple. On the edge of the lake is a pale pink marble marker dedicated to Hattie McDaniel, the most famous black actor of pre-war Hollywood. So it's no surprise that she wanted to be buried in Hollywood's premier cemetery. You know, it just makes sense that you know, she would want to be among peers. But when she died in 1952, there was a problem. The owner in the early 50s, when Hattie passed away, was racist and told her family no. Instead, she was given burial at Angelus Rosedale, which was her second plan. This wasn't an unusual situation. During the era of Jim Crow, Countless cemeteries across America were whites only or segregated into so-called separate but equal sections. In fact, until the 1950s, about 90% of all public cemeteries in America were segregated in some way. And Hollywood, for all its alleged liberal bias, was no exception. However, when our current owner, Tyler Cassidy, took over the cemetery in 1998, he heard about this terrible injustice and wanted to make it right. The new owner, working with the McDaniel family, decided that instead of moving her body, they would place a marker at a prominent place in the cemetery. And it says, Hattie McDaniel, star of Gone with the Wind, the marker is especially popular during Oscar season. And there's a quote from her nephew, Edgar Goff, that says, Aunt Hattie, you're a credit to your craft, your race, and to your family. It is a beautiful spot, but it's also a fitting metaphor for the complicated life of Hattie McDaniel, a woman who served as a bridge between two eras and had to compromise to survive in an almost exclusively white industry. 
Many know that she was the first black actor to win an Oscar. And if they know anything else, it's the story of her being shut out of the cemetery after her death. But the story in between is just as riveting. In the second half of her career, McDaniel became the scapegoat of a new civil rights era that emerged in World War II, signaling a death of her acting ambitions. Walter White, leader of the NAACP, became her personal nemesis. And much of her work and impact was made far from the camera lights in her neighborhood, her Los Angeles community. Understanding this side of Hattie McDaniel reframes a tragic Hollywood figure. I'm Adam McKay, and this is Death on the Lot. Tonight, how Hollywood's use of black actors clashed with the rising civil rights movement, and how the first black Oscar winner was caught in the middle. This is episode six, The Agent of Change. Up through the early 20th century, there were few things more popular than The Minstrel Show, a racist review featuring comedy skits, dancing, and singing by actors, usually white actors, wearing blackface. Oftentimes, they would burn cork and then cover their face in the resulting black soot. Ever since the early 19th century, white crowds had delighted in the antics and theatrics of these demeaning performances. And there was no more popular stock character in minstrel shows than the Mammy. Here's Al Jolson in the 1927 film The Jazz Singer, a white man singing in blackface. Keep in mind, basically this was the first feature-length talkie a monumentally important movie in American history. And this is what Warner Brothers led with. Mammy, the sunshine beat, the sunshine wet, but I know where the sunshine's best. Mammy. That was in the past. Why do we have to talk about that? You know, you're going to get a lot of that with the Hattie McDaniel stuff. This is Leah Aldrich, film studies professor at Chapman University. The Mammy figure is this devoted black woman who takes care of white families, especially the children, does the cooking, does the cleaning, takes care of the children, raises generations of children in white families and white homes. Mammy was a stock character that white audiences found comfortable and safe. She is trusted, she is loyal, she's devoted, even to the point of not being able to deliver the same for her own family. As a young black actress, Hattie McDaniel knew that this type of caricature was, well, total bullshit. But it was one of the only roles available for an ambitious performer, which Hattie definitely was. When I was eight years old, I knew what I was going to be, an actress. Get used to that voice. That's an actress as the voice of Hattie, which you'll hear throughout the episode. A carnival came to town. The man who ran the carnival, he needed some little colored children for one of the acts. 
I knew I could sing and dance. I was doing it so much at home, my mama would give me a nickel sometimes to stop. <laughs> I told the man, I said, Mister, I can work for you after school till 5.30, and I'll sneak away and come back in the evening. This was in the boom town of Denver, Colorado, right at the turn of the 20th century. Hattie wasn't alone in her ambitions. Both her parents were born into slavery, and her father had fought for the Union in the Civil War. But by this point, the McDaniels were entertainment trailblazers of sorts. They'd go on the road with Hattie and her sister, performing in an all-female minstrel show, a revolutionary act at the time. And within that show, Hattie developed a zany, subversive version of the Mammy stereotype. Savvy Black audiences loved it. She satirized the Mammy figure and, and showed the extremes of the Mammy figure and how ridiculous that stereotype was by playing it to its nth degree. Jill Watts, professor of history at Cal State San Marcos and author of Hattie McDaniel, Black Ambition, White Hollywood, she perfected impressions of famous white people or white stereotypes. And that's really radical and, and even performed in white face, which is a really radical kind of thing in the teens. Very few black performers ventured into criticizing white society in that way. Hattie became a mainstay on the black vaudeville circuit, known as the Theater Owners Booking Association, or TOBA. Toba provided black audiences with entertainment featuring black performers in black theaters throughout the United States. It was a space where black performers were able to create entertainment that had nothing to do with what whites wanted or thought. Hattie's huge personality was a hit, and she loved life on the road. I loved every minute of it. The tent shows, the kerosene lights, the contagious enthusiasm of the small-town crowds. And audiences loved her back. She wrote her own plays, produced, acted, danced. She wrote and sang blues songs, including Boo Hoo Blues and the Dennis Chair Blues. from seclusion to tell you about my man. This is Kevin Goff, McDaniel's great-grandnephew and keeper of the family flame. She was a drummer, and a very good drummer. So much so that she used to sit in with Jelly Roll Morton's band from time to time and, and play the skins. Yeah, that blew me away. I was like, wow, what can she not do? Just for perspective, Jelly Roll Morton was one of the biggest and most influential musicians of his day. This is like if I, Adam McKay, was called in to play drums with the police because Stuart Copeland had a head cold. Which, you know, I could play some drums. No, I can't. For African-American entertainers, the Theater Owners Booking Association may have been a space of their own, but life on the circuit was still hard. So hard, entertainers joke that T-O-B-A stood for Tough on Black Asses. They faced discrimination and Jim Crow at every turn. You know, if you're, um, if you're blazing a trail through the, through the West, that's going to be a hard journey because there was no trail there before. You have to either say, I don't have the energy for this, or you say, let me see if I can make a dent in here. 
Many black vaudeville performers, including Hattie's siblings, soon decamped for Hollywood. The lure of movie work offered a steady home, stardust, and stardom, but it also came at a big cost. Most black performers who wanted to break into films had no option but to turn to the white studio system. Hollywood doubles down and triples down on a singular or primary representation of blackness that is over and over and over again one of subjugation, subordination. Within this environment, black performers at times found ways to create community and to make the work fun, or at least tolerable. Kevin Goff recalls a story his father told him about his grandfather, Edgar, playing a, quote, native in the 1933 classic King Kong. They were playing villagers. So Kong breaks through the gates, and you see these natives just running for their lives. And, you know, they're wearing G-strings, they're topless, whatever. But Kevin's father told him to watch the scene closely. He'd see all the extras running in one direction, except for one who was running the other way. And I'm like, why, Dad? He said, that was your grandfather. And I said, well, why would he be running the opposite direction? That doesn't make sense. He said, well, your grandfather loved to drink, and he had a half pint of whiskey tucked in his G-string. The only way Kevin's grandfather could stand to be on the set was by sneaking in a bottle of booze. And in that scene, it broke. So his um, balls were on fire, and he's just running because (laughs) he's, I'm sorry, am I supposed to say that? He's just running just to run because he's on fire. He said, that's your grandfather. I said, no, he, and he's cracking up, telling me, and I'm like, no, you're making, no, no, that happened. Let's face it, Hollywood has a long history with alcohol and liquor. While I'm recording this right now, I have a big plastic handle of Smirnoff in front of me, and uh, I just cracked it at the beginning of this episode. Hold on one second. Uh, Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Apparently that's my drinking cheap vodka voice. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. By the early 1930s, Hattie had joined her siblings in Los Angeles. Hattie's physicality and effervescent attitude soon did get her lots of parts. But no surprise, many of them were those maid and mammy roles. She's very, very dark-skinned. And so the dark, the contrast between her dark skin and her bright eyes and her bright teeth allowed for people to read this kind of minstrel look into Hattie. They would kind of grease up her face a little bit. There was this way in which they fetishized her blackness. 
um, and the eyes pop kind of thing. To succeed in Hollywood, McDaniel was now playing the very demeaning archetype. She had once satirized on the Toba circuit. And she, she I think there's, there's a quote somewhere where she said, I'd, I'd rather play a maid than be a maid. This is Sidney Poitier Hartsong, daughter of legendary actors Sidney Poitier. And that was a real choice for her. She could play a maid or she could probably go and be a maid. But Hattie didn't have to be a maid for a living. Instead, she became a star because she was one. I love Hattie McDaniel. <laughs> and you sit up and you're watching her and you're watching her reactions and you're watching her uh, make hash out of leftovers, so to speak. Hattie couldn't help but bring some of the same subversiveness, that vaudeville sass, into her new roles. And once again, audiences loved it. Out of my way, eight ball. Who wants to get in your way? Hey, you, wait a minute. I'm watching for her reactions and her line deliveries and, you know, the way that she moves her body and the kind of aesthetic that is her, her physical form. Where'd you get that gold brooch? You mean this scrumptious piece of jewelry? Yeah, where'd you get it? It's gift. Um, the tenor of her voice which is just amazing. Ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. <laughs> She's always outspoken. She's often seems exasperated and put upon. Jill Watts again. She, um, see, you, you get the sense that she sees through the white people that she's serving and she gets them better than they get themselves. And because she has that kind of boldness to her style that I think she hones early on as a comedian in front of black audiences. Hilda, the door. I heard it. I ain't deaf. Sometimes I wish I was. Have you another piece for cake, Hilda? Yes, I have, but the kitchen's closed for the night. Hilda, Miss Beverly is our guest. I didn't ask her. While white audiences laughed, black audiences knew exactly what Hattie was doing. It's like we're noticing that there's something different about the way y'all behave compared to the way that we behave, right? They don't become the center of the narratives, but they are nevertheless providing some kind of commentary and critique, and lots of people don't necessarily read it that way. But trust me, black audiences were reading it that way at that time. In 1938, producer David O. Selznick was casting Hollywood's next big extravaganza, a film version of Margaret Mitchell's best-selling and bigly racist Civil War epic, Gone with the Wind. There's a mammy in it, and no surprise, Hattie McDaniel was at the top of the list of actors considered. Hattie campaigned hard for the role, and she was thrilled when she got it, but she didn't roll over. According to some, she refused to do the role unless Selznick took the N-word out of the film. There were, you know, and they wanted to get that into the script. And she, she didn't want to do that. She was pretty adamant about that. Selznick conceded, and Hattie told the L.A. Times how excited she was to get the role. She joked about driving past the cat-calling playboys who hung out on Central Ave, the heart of black L.A., in her new luxury car, and she yelled right back at them. Sorry, gentlemen, got no time to socialize. They're waiting for me at the studio. We're starting to shoot Gone with the Wind today. Adjusted for Inflation, Gone with the Wind is still 
the highest grossing film of all time, despite or perhaps because of the fact that it was outdated, racist, and therefore comforting to white audiences. But despite its many problems, McDaniel was generally praised by audiences and critics for her portrayal of Mammy. I've always felt that Hattie was the soul of that movie. She's the only person that has the guts to tell Scarlett, Ashley doesn't love you. He is not asking to marry you. And when she says that in the movie, it's sort of like this mic drop moment of like, she is speaking the truth when nobody else will do it. Truth telling meant that she was able to go toe to toe with Scarlett. You don't care what folks says about this family, I do. I have told you and told you that she can always tell a lady but the way that she eat in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkinson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Her performance was moving, emotional, a chance to dig into dramatic scenes not usually given to black performers. Side by side with the protagonist of the film, Scarlett O'Hara, and her love interest, Ashley. In the nursery with Miss Bonnie. But he wouldn't even open the door when Miss Scarlett beat all it and hollered to him. And that's where it's been for two whole days. The performance was a triumph, and still, despite it all, Hattie was barred from attending the premiere of Gone with the Wind in Atlanta on December 15, 1939. Selznick schedules the premiere for Atlanta, and he presumes, actually, that the Black cast members will go, but the city of Atlanta blocks that, that would violate their segregationist codes. They recruited the choir from the Ebenezer Baptist Church, whose minister was Martin Luther King Sr. and within the choir was Martin Luther King Jr. So he sang on the stage before the movie showed, before an all-white audience, which was according to Atlanta's segregationist code. After the event, Margaret Mitchell, the book's author, sent Hattie a telegram, I suppose some small attempt to comfort the actor who'd been shut out. The premier audience loved you and so did I. The mayor of Atlanta called for a hand for our Hattie McDaniel, and I wish you could have heard the cheers. Hattie McDaniel was nominated for a Best Supporting Oscar for her role as Mammy, the first black actor to receive an Oscar nomination. The ceremony was the evening of February 29, 1940. And when she entered the ambassador hotel's ballroom, she got applause as she came in. But even in this room, even though she had already been told she had won, she was treated as second class. She was escorted to the absolute perimeter of of the dining room where she was seated with her escort and an agent, away from the rest of the cast of Gone with the Wind who was sitting predominantly right there in the middle. When she won, McDaniel tearfully made the long walk to stage. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry, and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. 
And may I say thank you. God bless you. The production company, Selznick, they had written a speech for her, but she had conveniently lost it. And she read a speech which was written by her good friend Ruby Berkeley Goodwin. And it, 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 so the speech that you see that's captured on film is a speech that was actually written by a black woman for her to say. For a born performer, there was simply no higher honor. Hattie McDaniel was on top of the world. It had to be an out-of-body experience. Um, I, I have out-of-body experiences when my wife makes me coffee. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. You know, so it, 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 it had to be a dream come true. But somewhere in the back of her mind, given all the pressure she'd faced, how she'd been shut out, sidelined, Hattie may have wondered what was really behind the nomination. Jill Watts points out, the Academy's decision can be seen as a deeply cynical choice. Hollywood is feeling that pressure. They don't want the government coming down on them eventually to try to censor films, too. And they've been getting a lot of criticism for these caricatures of, of black people. And so what better thing to do than to nominate Hattie McDaniel? And then, then she receives the award to argue for their position that Hollywood's a great place, right? Case in point, immediately after holding up Hattie as a sign of progress in liberal white circles, the powers that be showed zero interest in giving Hattie room to spread her wings as an actor. And it's not like her Oscar led to what it does for many, but did for many white actors. Sharon Marcus, author of The Drama of Celebrity. It's not like Hattie McDaniel, after winning an Oscar, went on to play the lead role in a lot of you know, amazing movies focused around her character. It, it was something of a, a dead end for her. The truth is, Hattie had no power in Hollywood. There was no leveling up after the Oscar win. And having gone from the vaudeville circuit to fighting her way up through the studio system, Hattie had to have been a realist about a deeply racist industry. She found work where she could and went back to playing maids and mammies. I just often think if she didn't have the barriers, what would she have, have accomplished? You know, it would have been amazing. I would have loved to have seen her in the Western um, shooting it out with John Wayne and you know, shoot John Wayne in the knee or something. But um, that wasn't going to happen. In some ways, Hattie's Oscar win for Gone with the Wind was more cursed than blessing. Within the industry, she'd just been held up as a trailblazer, only to quickly realize it was largely a symbolic gesture. And outside of Hollywood, there'd always been skepticism about the kinds of roles she took on. Black civil rights groups like the NAACP had long criticized the demeaning roles black actors were forced to play, all the way back to the film Birth of a Nation in 1915. But the massive publicity and subsequent success of Gone with the Wind ignited a new firestorm against bad black representation in films. Gone with the Wind really brings, I think, into focus the real problems with Hollywood and the stereotypes Hollywood manufactures. There were pickets and protests outside screenings of the movie, and Hattie became a symbol to activists of all that was broken. 
welterweight of the NAACP sees it as an opportunity to raise the issue and raise it in an effective way to try to affect some, some, some real change. Walter White was the leader of the NAACP and a powerful voice in the fight for civil rights. And he set his sights on Hattie McDaniel. Walter White was the executive secretary of the NAACP, and he was born in Georgia. He had come up in a fairly privileged family, had college education. White was about as different from Hattie as one could imagine. He was also incredibly light-skinned, and he could pass for white, but he chose to live his life as a black man, except when he was infiltrating white supremacist groups. He had a, a bit of an ego, and he could be a micromanager, and he ran the NAACP from the top down. He was committed to changing black representation in Hollywood, and white had the winds of change at his back. By the early 1940s, with black and brown Americans fighting for freedom in World War II and black women sacrificing at home, civil rights leaders were increasingly refusing to be stereotyped, othered, and demeaned any longer. World War II was a game changer for Hollywood, period. It incited an awareness of anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism here in the United States. Seeing his chance, White tried to convince the studios to give Black Americans better, more representative roles and to depict the version of Black America that he wanted them to see. He really does push forward the issue of the necessity for Hollywood to revise these images and make them better images. Many in the younger generation simply couldn't understand how performers like Hattie, the daughter of formerly enslaved people, someone who had faced poverty and oppression, could compartmentalize her life, taking roles that many believed held back Black progress. These images are derogatory, and because they're derogatory, they're dangerous, and they perpetuate um, Jim Crow and the lack of job opportunities um, and and the suppression of Black people. And White began to increasingly single out Hattie McDaniel as what he did not want to see. According to one account, when White asked a friend to compile three anti-Negro movies, he chose The Little Colonel, Maryland, and Gone with the Wind, all starring Hattie McDaniel. She was specifically targeted because she was the most prominent black actress in Hollywood. Because she's central, she's the best target, if you think about it. While White was publicly criticizing performers like Hattie, he wasn't reaching out to them directly. Instead, White went to studio producers themselves, often denigrating black actors in the process, commanding them to stop, quote, mugging and playing the clown before the camera. His relationship with the Black performers and Hattie McDaniel is central in that group. His relationship deteriorates because they feel like he's in there inserting himself and telling the public that they should be embarrassed of their performances. At the 1943 NAACP meeting in Los Angeles in front of 10,000 delegates, Walter White stood on stage with newcomer Lena Horne and talked about how he was advocating directly with the studios for better roles. No mention of Hattie. No mention of the work that Black members of the actors' unions were already doing. Hattie was incensed. She later accused White of treating her, quote, 
with the tone and manner that a Southern colonel would use to his favorite slave. I have no quarrel with the NAACP or colored fans who object to the role some of us play. But I naturally resent being completely ignored at the convention. I have struggled for 11 years to open up opportunities for our group in the industry, and I have tried to reflect credit upon my race and exemplary conduct both on and off screen. Things came to a head in January 1946, when White held a summit with black actors, including Lena Horne, and Hattie's brother Sam, Hattie McDaniel, did not attend. I cannot accept your invitation to break bread with Walter White, for he has openly insulted my intelligence. The way things went, McDaniel was probably glad she stayed away. It turns into a giant fight. He's not listening to them. You know, they become very defensive on their end. Hattie McDaniel won't even go. Louise Beavers speaks on her behalf and says, basically, you're harder on black women than you are on anyone else. And he denies that. And when she leaves the meeting, she, she basically says, he isn't listening, this can't be resolved. Both sides had lost sight of the real villain in the story, the white studio system. The debate between Walter White and Hattie McDaniel gets a lot of attention because it's within the community. But the real problem was the white Hollywood producers. And in a way, it's a divide-and-conquer strategy on their part to court Walter White while at the same time saying to these performers, here's the same roles again, and you're doing great. And that's really important. To put blame where blame is due is to put blame on white Hollywood for perpetuating the racism. White and the NAACP did meet with some success. Hollywood started to kind of listen and incrementally expand their portrayal of black people on screens, but not always for altruistic reasons. You've got um, CIA and other governmental entities coming to Hollywood saying, can you put a little more black faces in some of your movies? Leah Aldrich. We, we got we to clean up our image. You have black African dip- diplomats coming to the United States in the post-war period that can't enter hotels through the front door. This is a problem. The government realizes that if we're going to win the Cold War, we have to fix our uh, white supremacist racism issues here at home. And they enlist Hollywood to be part of that solution. I suppose the lesson is never doubt Hollywood's ability to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. By the late 1940s, Hattie was increasingly seen as out of step with the times. She found herself an outcast in certain social circles. According to her best friend, Ruby Goodwin, there were, quote, bitter years of loneliness and disillusionment when she thought her race did not appreciate her artistry. Hattie felt her role advancing black performers had been killed by Walter White's attacks. According to Watts, she asked a reporter in 1949, How can one in your profession not know that millions of Negroes in this country are employed in domestic roles? Surely you don't think the roles I portray are obsolete. In an op-ed in The Hollywood Reporter, a defiant, bewildered Hattie 
implored her peers to recognize her for all she and other black pre-war performers had endured in the name of black progress. Recently, Hollywood has been criticized for his portrayal of the Negro on the screen. I have been censured by some of my race for not joining in the denouncement. Many of those loudest in the condemnation are newcomers who do not remember the days when no Negro player was given a dressing room. I have seen many changes in the film city. We have been welcomed into the unions where the rate of pay is standardized. Many of our groups have served on the board of directors of the Screen Actors Guild. The trend has been one of increasing gain. She kept her her integrity intact. She was very good about keeping her composure with all that going on. I mean, she has all these different knives coming at her, so to speak. And she's, you know, she's moving left to right and ducking and dodging, and she's getting through it as best she can. For many at the time and many now, this is where the Hattie McDaniel story ends, out of sync with the changing Hollywood. A vestige of a time most wanted to forget. But the Hattie's story didn't end there. Hattie's talents and drive never went away. Hattie's work in this era would be largely hidden from public view. God has endowed me with other talents which Walter White and no other persons know nothing of. And they are not menial, as he has said. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hattie was struggling to find her place within the industry and within a changing city of Los Angeles. L.A. has been always a segregated space. But by the 1920s, when there's a larger influx of people of color and specifically black people, the teens, the 20s, they begin embedding what's called restrictive covenants into deeds. And restrictive covenants prevent homeowners from selling their property to people of color. It imposes a sort of Jim Crow out here in the West. One prominent white neighborhood feeling the pressure was Sugar Hill in the West Adams area. As white residents left that neighborhood, many of them ignored the covenants and sold to black buyers anyway. And as such, a thriving black neighborhood was born. Sugar Hill is a term that's used throughout Black communities for the area where the Black elite live, the places where professional people and successful people um, live. And, and these are neighborhoods where people are able to buy, you know, nice homes and 
Um, they're not in the crowded districts, but they're still segregated, right? Sugar Hill flourished. Here, prominent black Angelinos could live a life of excellence and respectability. In the early 40s, Hattie McDaniel bought a large arts and crafts mansion. Lena Horan once said it was the most exquisite house she had ever seen. Horn, who had become friends with Hattie, despite Walter White trying to pit them against each other, remembered Hattie telling her, I'm a fine mammy on the screen, but I'm Hattie McDaniel in my house. Hattie created a space where she could be who she really was, a romantic, cultured, multi-talented woman. You know, Hattie is very uh, aware of her position and her ability to ascend, if you will, and um, become self-sufficient, buy a nice house, live a, a you know a, a certain kind of quality of life. She's very aware of that, and at the same time, of the duality of having to be accountable to black folks who are looking at her and saying, "Your portrayals are making it more and more difficult for us that are still here, struggling." As her career stagnated and her fourth marriage fell apart, Hattie leaned into the life she created in Sugar Hill, escaping into self-help manuals and charitable works. She had periods of great melancholy, and she fought against it with philosophies of positive thinking and, and all kinds of other ways to try to enhance her life to make herself happy. So she's a seeker. And in her years living in Sugar Hill, Hattie also threw herself into the causes she cared about. Behind the scenes, she was doing the work, both to aid the war effort and Black causes. She actually supports the NAACP. It's a misnomer to think that she fought with the NAACP. She fought with Walter White. She was a member of the local NAACP. She supported um, a lot of their campaigns. She also became the most famous hostess in Sugar Hill. You know, there was singing and, and dancing and telling of jokes at her home. And within the Black community, this becomes a space where people can actually perform in the way they want, where people could share their art and, and work on their art, the kind of art that Hollywood won't let them do. These parties were a salon where progressive debates of the era were discussed. Sometimes Hattie's famous white friends also came to the parties. And two of the most famous happened to be conservative Republicans. Yeah, I mean, she had tons of friends. She threw um, regular parties. I mean, Clark Gable and Bing Crosby. and I mean, pretty much, you know, who's who in Hollywood would show up at her parties. As Sugar Hill thrived as a space for prominent black Angelinos, the remaining white residents began to push back. When she moves in, again, because she's so prominent, I think she drew a lot of attention to her, to, to her presence. And white neighbors began attempting to drive her out. White neighbors pointed to the covenants, the ones the white owners had ignored when selling their homes to people like Hattie. Their goal, to kick black owners out of their hard-earned homes. And so Hattie found a new cause. She fought back and she organized the black residents. And then they worked with the local NAACP to mount a case to protect their homes, to keep them from being expelled. 
She organized neighbors like Louise Beavers and Ethel Waters and hosted meetings at her home. Together, the black residents of Sugar Hill decided to fight back. They hired the legendary black lawyer, Lauren Miller, to represent them. In December 1945, Hattie and a group of over 200 supporters were in a Los Angeles courtroom where Miller argued that racially restrictive deeds and covenants were unconstitutional. Shocking the court, Judge Thurman Clark almost immediately agreed with Miller, ruling, It is time that members of the Negro race are courted without reservations and evasions the full rights guaranteed them under the 14th Amendment of the federal Constitution. Judges have been avoiding the real issue too long. Certainly, there was no discrimination against the Negro race when it came to calling upon its members to die on the battlefields in defense of this country in the war just ended. This monumental ruling opened the doors for the end of redlining and government-sanctioned segregation throughout America. Through her activism, Hattie led the battle for Black Americans to have the right to safely own their own homes, wherever they chose to live. She doesn't take credit for it, and in part, I think, because she helps organize it, but she's a part of it. Do you know what I mean? She sees it as a group of people who pushed back against this. If you asked her, are you an activist, she probably would say, no, I'm an artist. And acting was what Hattie still wanted to do, even if it meant continuing to play the one role open to her, that of a maid. In the late 40s, McDaniel had a resurgence of popularity, playing the maid Beulah on the radio. In 1951, Hattie's Beulah made the transition to television, but Hattie had to stop filming after suffering a heart attack and an eventual diagnosis of advanced breast cancer. Can you sing, Beulah? I didn't know that. Can I sing? One of her last appearances as Beulah was on her friend Ed Wynn's variety show, and her love of performing shines through. You're gonna miss me, honey. Some of these days. In failing health, Hattie moved into the motion picture country house and hospital. She was again a first, the first black performer to live there. Hattie died on October 26, 1952. I believe there were 3,000 people at the funeral. There were car, a lot of cars everywhere. It, it, it obviously made an impact. She was obviously uh, missed. And today her name still comes up. Sometimes it's like ebbs and flows, but her name is always in the conversation somewhere. The death of Hattie McDaniel coincided with the slow end of a pre-war version of Black representation. Seeing the writing on the wall, studios began to create better films for a chosen few Black performers. The roles that start to emerge in the 50s tend to be more diversified. So we're we're seeing Black doctors. We're seeing 
mostly black men, right? So it's progressive in one way and, you know, kind of regressive in other areas. This is Sidney Poitier-Hart's song talking about her father, Sidney. He came to Hollywood and the things that he was seeing on screen were not the things that he was moved to do. Um, I don't think that he really understood because he wasn't from this country why it was like that. You can't help but internalize that on some level, even when you know it's not true. Actors like Poitier, the first black man to win an Oscar for 1963's Lilies of the Field, refused to play roles they did not feel were right. And with begrudging studio support, they were also determined to hold the mantle of civil rights activists. My dad's generation, the Aussies and the Rubies and my dad and Harry, they were far more uh, politically motivated and far more interested in changing the cultural conversation uh, than in just having a job. But as Hartsong notes, that option to pick and choose was not available to Hattie. Despite this, in the years after her death, Hattie became a cautionary tale to many, a symbol of the Uncle Tom stereotype. She was such a polarizing figure that during the 1960s, her Oscar, which she had bequeathed to Howard University, disappeared, perhaps taken by students during civil rights protests. Hattie McDaniels doesn't really get recuperated until... I would say late 80s, early 90s, where people are looking back, well, we have more of a history. Uh, we have more data, if you will, that we can analyze. Uh, and people are generationally sensitive to the circumstances uh, in which Hattie was attempting to just work as an entertainer, right? There's still people who are like, no but they're clear that it's about the representations and the limits that are placed on Black performers at those times. Of course, representation in Hollywood still has a long way to go. I still believe, even in today's day and age, that you don't really see the sort of width and breadth of the Black experience on screen. You see narrow versions of it and you see little bits of it in the in the best friend or the coworker or the you know um but we're getting there we're getting there and in her own way hattie mcdaniel was part of this progress this debt was acknowledged in 2010. the actress monique who was nominated for best supporting actress for the film precious dressed in homage to hattie she told the reporter, The reason why I have on this royal blue dress is because it's the color that Hattie McDaniel wore in 1940 when she accepted her Oscar. The reason why I have this gardenia in my hair, it is the flower that Hattie McDaniel wore when she accepted her Oscar. So for you, Miss Hattie McDaniel, I feel you all over me. And it's about time that the world feels you all over them. Monique won and in her speech acknowledged the enormity of what Hattie McDaniel, in her own pragmatic way, had done for Hollywood and her people. I want to thank Miss Hattie McDaniel for enduring all that she had to so that I would not have to. 
Unlock all episodes of Death on the Lot ad-free right now by subscribing to The Binge, our new podcast channel. Not only will you immediately unlock all episodes of the show, but you'll get binge access to an entire network of other great true crime and investigative podcasts all ad-free. Plus, on the first of every month, subscribers get a binge drop. That's not my phrase, by the way, but I'm going to say it. They get a binge drop of a brand new series. That's all episodes all at once. Unlock your listening now by clicking subscribe at the top of the Death on the Lot show page on Apple Podcasts or visit GetTheBinge.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Death on the Lot is a Hyper Object Industries and Sony Music Entertainment production. It's executive produced by Jody Avergan, Claire Slaughter, Harry Nelson, and me, Adam McKay. Episodes were written by Brian Steele and Hadley Mears and edited by Jody Avergan. Our managing producer was Jennifer Siegel, and talent producer was Catherine Shoemaker. Producers were Shane McKeon and Kendra Hanna, with additional production support from Jordan Allen and Zaley Mahone. Consultants on the show were Justin Geldzahler and Sarah Mathis. Episodes were fact-checked by Matt Giles and Tom Cody. Our music is by Beacon Street Studios. Episodes were mixed and sound designed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. I'm your host, Adam McKay. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with more Death on the Lot. Hi, it's your pal Adam McKay again with some thoughts about this episode and thoughts about the upcoming episode. Yeah, I feel like Hattie McDaniel uh, is a a tragic story, uh, a very hopeful story, and then ultimately an inspiring story. I I love how the end of her story and, and with her key part in overturning racist uh, redlining laws I I love how it really just comes out of nowhere. And what it really reminds us is that the frame of fame, the frame of media, in other words, what we know from seeing it in the news, the tabloids, movies, a lot of times, in fact, most of the times, uh, it is pretty useless. And that Hattie's greatest triumph in no way intersected with that media spotlight. Uh, It all happened very quietly behind the scenes. But man, oh man, I just love the ending of this story. And our next episode will dive into one of the big dark sides of Hollywood that's plagued this community for years and years, which is misogyny, gender inequality. And we're going to do it... um, through the tale of one of the most famous and onerous figures in Hollywood history, Errol Flynn. That's right, Robin Hood. Uh, I knew that his story was dark. I knew that it was without a doubt politically incorrect. And even I was shocked by some of the elements to this story and how he was tolerated 
way late in his career where you would have thought we would have known better. So uh, if you can, uh, join us and give it a listen, and I will see you next episode. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>